This is a Dice of Brussels. In today's episode, we're bringing you another one of our interviews recorded at Oasis in Belfast. Uh, today, we've got David talking to John O'Brennan, who's Professor of European Integration at Maynooth University in Ireland. They cover the process of Brexit, where we were, where we are, where we might be. I also think a bit about uh, some of the dynamics that are at work. So here's David to do some further introductions. Perhaps you can just give us a little introduction firstly in relation to your work on Brexit before we go into a little bit more detail about some of the uh, issues. Well, I've worked on two things principally over the last 25 years, primarily on the enlargement policy of the European Union. So I've spent a quarter century schlepping up and down Central and Eastern Europe, trying to understand the process and the politics and so on. But my secondary research interest was in Ireland and Europe, and that was really triggered at the start of my career when we had not one but two EU referendums that failed. So I did some work at that time, and then when Brexit happened, it was so, so existential for Ireland that I found myself drawn back to it. And actually, within a week of the referendum happening, Paul Gillespie, the well-known uh, journalist with the Irish Times, also works with UCD, Paul had convened a meeting in the Royal Irish Academy for the week after uh, the referendum. And I suppose most people thought it's going to be a vote to remain. And by the way, I didn't. I predicted uh, that Brexit would happen. But it, overnight it became a completely different question because the Irish question was going to be absolutely front and centre of the negotiations. Paul and others were deeply interested in that. Questions about constitutional order in Ireland the border coming back and all of that. So it was actually the urgency, I think, of the referendum and all the questions that it produced, which brought people like me uh, back into thinking about and doing research on Ireland's relationship with the EU. And you mentioned uh, the Irish question. Yeah. Um, indeed, the UK somewhat got um, stuck in those negotiations. So, I mean, how did then the UK, in your view, really mess up on these negotiations? Because if we reflect back on it now, the EU27 came in very well prepared. Donald Tusk, of course, I mean, he said we we're going to be united, and that theme of unity went straight to the towards the member states. And of course, as you mentioned, Ireland as well. And Ireland managed to, if you were to use that term, upload uh, the Northern Irish issue uh, into the agenda of the European Council. So I was just wondering. When we look at the UK side, I mean, what went wrong here? Well, on the Irish side, firstly, the preparations for the referendum began long before the referendum actually took place. Because we'd had the experience of referendums, because we knew that they're incredibly volatile, you just cannot predict how they're going to go, the Department of Foreign Affairs had actively prepared for this. And on the European Union side, there was incredible speed and clarity uh, with the response of the presidents of the institutions almost immediately in the day after the referendum. And that reflected, I think, a pattern that would continue subsequently. Um, on the British side, the big problem was that many of the people who campaigned for leave um, 
didn't expect it to happen, were to different degrees and in different ways promoting their own careers. There's a term called grifters, and many of them, I think, fall into that category. And if you don't know what you want from a negotiation, that's a very, very poor starting point. Now, the EU had never been in this position before either, so it was completely novel. But at least on the EU side, very quickly there was a determination that um, the single market would be protected, that the UK in leaving would not disrupt the European Union. And then once that representation was made from Ireland, uh, very quickly it went up the agenda. Uh, but the big problem on the UK side, I think, for a long time afterwards was simply that they did not know what they wanted. And it's made worse by Theresa May, firstly, um, looking at her disastrous successors. She almost comes out of this uh, whiter than white. But if we look back, she was the person who literally weeks after taking over in office in 2016, goes to the Conservative Party conference and gives this extraordinarily confrontational speech about the European Union. She's the author of the so-called hostile environment policy. A big part of that was demonizing the European Union as encouraging citizens of nowhere. She then makes it worse again with the Lancaster House speech in January of 2017. Um, so there was this great sort of bravura performance and all the while in the background there's this constant sort of um, failure and repeated failure to actually define what the negotiations might deliver. And that then I think set this pattern which was repeated over and over again where on one side there was clarity and the institutional actors all had their ducks in a row and on the other side very frequently it was chaos and literally with Johnson it was government by chaos and especially in that very first period you know after he takes office in the summer of 2019 and prorogues parliament and does all of those things that nobody thought you know any Conservative government might do. So that's an extraordinary contrast, and it's, it's all there in one image, I think, of David Davis when he went to negotiate with Barnier in the very early stages. And if you look at the image, it is on one side, the EU side, that are you know, stacks of paper in front of them with you know, papers on different uh, sectors of negotiations. And on the other side, Davis has virtually nothing. And I think that image at the time spoke volumes about the difference in capacity and approach on both sides, and nothing really changed until very late in the day. So you could say that the British were hold underwater from the very start then, because the lack of preparation, as you mentioned, the fact that Theresa May, I mean, the UK was trying to formulate its preferences, and while after triggering Article uh, 50, I think that's a, a fair point yeah. to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And was doing so, I think, with some constraints, and we can come back to those, but 
one of the things that emerged very quickly is that um, for many on the UK side, this was genuinely about sovereignty and reclaiming sovereignty. And the way in which many of the leading actors in the UK thought about and conceptualized sovereignty was entirely different to the way sovereignty is viewed in Dublin and across the European Union. So for us, sovereignty is shared, and by sharing you enhance and give substance and greater meaning to your sovereignty. In the UK, invariably, it was presented as zero sum, that if you're part of a collective enterprise, you dilute your own sovereignty and your own um, interests are harmed necessarily. And that kind of divide, I think, remained there. And many of the leading negotiators, David Frost especially, is the epitome of this, clung to this, in my view, completely antediluvian concept of sovereignty as monolithic and black and white, when actually the reality was Britain was locked into an entirely asymmetric trade relationship with the EU, where it sent 40% of its exports to the EU, and in return the EU sent only 7% of its total exports to Britain. Uh, so that sort of confusion about sovereignty, but the way that it dominated the debate about Brexit for a long period, I think, was one of the principal kind of handicaps that the British side faced. And moving, if I may, because we may pick up that, um, but moving on to the TCA and specifically the renewal of the TCA, um, we have seen some positive steps here, I think it's fair to say. We have the Windsor framework now. Uh, we have that, you could say, deeper collaboration, at least a bit on defence, so maybe the collaboration is a strong word here, but at least aligned views on defending the Ukraine and supplying weapons, both from the European Union and from the UK. And as you touched on just a moment ago, I mean, the change in administration. So you, you mentioned, obviously, Boris Johnson. Of course, Boris Johnson and his successor, uh, his trust then, left office. And now we have, of course, Rishi Sunak. So I was just wondering, maybe based on those three areas, do you think that we are moving to a much more mature relationship, a much more peaceful relationship, less contestation between the two sides? Well, the mood music is better, for sure. And because... Sonak, I think, took a different view from the moment he took office and presented as a more rational and coherent figure. Relations improved. The very fact that he wasn't Truss or Johnson and that he didn't have chaos going on all around him all the time was an advantage, I think, for him. And it did pave the way, I think, for the breakthrough that became the Windsor framework. And it's important and I think we should appreciate it. But in the longer term, notwithstanding cooperation on Ukraine, for example, there is no doubt that it becomes much, much more difficult to sustain relationships and to achieve a commonality of interest and to work across collective action problems. Um, if you're not at the table you lose institutional memory over time. And I think you also lose something that's underappreciated in politics. It's the art of the informal conversation and the way relationships are built in that way. To work backwards, 1973, I don't think any British prime minister had visited the Republic since the founding of the state in 1921. 
then suddenly in Brussels, we have these formal spaces where ministers are meeting each other, but so are civil servants and they're getting to know each other. And those informal spaces provide a landscape which is away from what was actually a very tense environment between London and Dublin, obviously because of the troubles, but it provided this neutral space where people could get to know each other, build trust in each other, and I'm convinced that that did play a role in the breakthrough that was achieved in 1998 through the peace agreement, and there were lots of precursors to it. So you had all this um, intense activity, and after the European single market comes on board in 1993, a largely British idea, the scale of that went up again appreciably. So British and Irish officials were meeting each other all the time. Now, think about that. All of that scaffold is removed. And it's not just significant for the Irish and British relationship because we worried that, for example, Strand 3 of the Good Friday Agreement just doesn't provide enough of those spaces and the regularity of meetings so that you could replicate all of that. But that applies at an even larger level for the EU and UK. How do you possibly replicate the contact between officials and the value added that that contact brought for both sides in that earlier period? We simply don't know how that's going to work out. And a lot of it may depend on um, two things. Number one, <clears throat> an election held in the United Kingdom within the next year or so will the Labour Party take a significantly different approach? But it also depends on the European Union, I think, crucially, and both domestic politics in specific states and the governments that are elected in those states, what attitude they take towards the United Kingdom. And we shouldn't ignore the European Parliament, a very important election next year, where we could, for the first time, see the kind of agglomeration of far-right parties coming out with the largest number of seats in the parliament. For many, it still seems incomprehensible that that might happen. They have failed to cooperate with each other in the past because they come from very disparate sort of traditions and so forth. But if they do get their act together, and if you look at opinion polls all over Europe in national um, elections, um, we may well see a very, very different European Parliament emerge next time. So, you know, there are very, very important questions on both sides about what the relationship might look like. And you mentioned that relationship going forward then. I mean, we don't want to be hostage of fortune here, but there is a likelihood that we may end up with Keir Starmer as Prime Minister, be it majority or minority, and if he is a minority, likely propped up by the SNP and the Liberal Democrats, and we know their views on Europe. But do you see possibly an avenue here where the Labour Party will seek to move to perhaps not obviously deeper collaboration or deeper integration in major areas, but perhaps minor areas, so Horizon, for example, maybe through the EPC a bit more, or even a little bit on defence? No, I don't actually, for a whole variety of reasons. First, the European Union does not like the idea of mini deals. We've already got this arrangement with Switzerland. Most people in Brussels really don't like it, and they certainly don't want to replicate it for a much larger member state, which in trading terms is vastly bigger than Switzerland. 
That's the first point. The second is about labour and Europe and the history of labour and European integration. We sometimes, I think, look at the Conservatives and identify them as the bogeymen in this story. But if you look at the labour record on Europe over a long period of time, it is barely any better. In the 1950s, there was virtually no enthusiasm for entering the European coal and steel community and what would become the EEC. It was only when the EEC became such a vaunted success that that changed in Britain. But I think if you look at the disaster that Brexit turned out to be, the Labour Party is just as responsible as the Conservative Party. Why? Um, you go back quarter century, Tony Blair is elected in 1997, he is the self-proclaimed most pro-European leader in British history. He goes to the French Parliament and addresses the Parliament in relatively fluent French. There's the saint Melo um, defence agreement with France. All of that is hugely positive. And then within three years, it's all over. He throws in his lot with George W. Bush. And I often ask the counterfactual, what if he had actually thrown in his lot with Chirac and Schroeder, with France and Germany, that were both deeply opposed to the war? There are a whole variety of reasons why he didn't. Part of it was Gordon Brown, his opposition to the euro. He was definitely more Eurosceptic. But part of it was also the fear of the conservative press on Europe, that if he made moves that were too bold, that he would be attacked and vilified and potentially would lose the next election. And I think both Blair and Brown were absolutely scarred by the loss of that election in 1992. You remember when they were 20 points ahead, Neil Kinnock and colleagues conspired to lose that election. I think it left an indelible mark, and that's why Blair went to Rupert Murdoch and to others. Um, it was astonishing to me that Gordon Brown, in the later stages of his premiership, if you look at his lunch diary in, I think it was 2008 now, he had lunch with Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail, more than anybody else. For somebody who was supposed to be a man of the left, it's just extraordinary. And I think that they could have changed the entire tone of Britain's relationship with Europe if they had had conviction at that time. But they were so fearful, I think, of the right-wing press and what they would do to them. And you could say that subsequently, with what happened to Ed Miliband, that that was justified, that kind of fear. But it leaves us in the position that Starmer now simply doesn't have the courage of his conviction. Corbyn, when he was leader, I never believed for a moment that he was telling the truth when he said that he voted to remain. His whole career was as a left Eurosceptic. Starmer, it seems to me, has taken the safest route possible. I think it's absolutely the wrong route. And I think even if he were to get a commanding majority, which the opinion polls at the moment suggest he will, I still don't think he's going to be very ambitious about improving the relationship. I don't see him, for example, signing Britain up to the customs union and the single market. And there are maybe good reasons why they shouldn't do that, because they would not be at the table where these critical decisions are made. So is he going to change that dial? I don't think so. I think it will be after a long period of relative economic decline, and it may be 
something for the next generation in Britain to do, but I doubt very much that it will happen even under a two-term Starmer government. And as we approach the end here, I mean, you brought up two very interesting points. I don't want to be the defender of, uh, I think it is Sir Tony Blair, uh, but uh, obviously Corbyn, as you mentioned, I mean, he does have some responsibility here. I mean, he was le Labour leader at that very critical juncture yep. during the referendum campaign, yep. and then also, of course, when the Conservatives have lost their majority yep. in the House of Commons. And then I was just wondering, do you proportion a degree of blame for Corbyn on that? And then the second question I have is, I mean, and this is something I've also been thinking about as well. I mean, if Starmer comes in, I mean, if you, as you mentioned, he's going to come in with a majority, but he'll have a super majority. We think about on EU issues with the Liberal Democrats and the SNP, who will hold their own, I would think. So, I mean, where do you think? Why do you think Starmer isn't so brave here? Because he could really be. Not necessarily an heir to Blair, but necessarily to change that dial, and he would have the support. Because I think they are locked into the first-past-the-post model, and they just can't see beyond that, that they're now about to get their turn, and they won't need the Liberal Democrats, and they won't need the SNP. If you look back at 2019, I think you're absolutely right that Corbyn, uh, if he had been smart, he could and should have gone to the Liberal Democrats and said, OK, we are going to stand down in X number of constituencies to give you a free run. So an electoral pact. And we know from the evidence that there were more than 100 seats that the Conservatives won, that Labour or the Liberal Democrats would have won had one or other of the parties stepped down in that kind of context. They didn't and they paid the worst possible price for it. But, I mean, I think Starmer is as wedded to that model as any Labour leader in the past has been, even though I would argue that a model of proportional representation is one that Labour could potentially thrive under. It was an enormous lost opportunity, not just on Brexit, but I don't think Corbyn could have done it on Brexit because his conviction, his inner conviction, was so hostile to the European Union and it never changed. I don't believe that he voted Remain, neither do I believe that Theresa May voted Remain. Remember, during the campaign, she was referred to as the submarine because she never came up for air. She wasn't seen in the course of the campaign. And as we draw to our final question then, I mean, what lessons do you think UK policymakers can learn from this debacle, specifically in relation to the renewal of the TCA? So, as you're probably aware, uh, and indeed we did a podcast on this on car batteries, for example, that is a salient issue for the UK, and the Commission has at this moment in time held off in relation to engaging with UK car manufacturers. I mean, German car manufacturers are also having a bit of a problem in this, with this as well, of course, for various reasons, which I won't go into. And then also, there has been, during the summer, and obviously we get these kind of August stories, but uh, also in March of this year as well, uh, Sunak had at least tried partially to engage with the European Union on the issue of migration, of course, these small boats crossing the channel. So I was just wondering what lessons could you impart or wisdom you can impart to UK policymakers on maybe those two specific issues and maybe more broadly? Well, first about. on electric batteries, it's really about industrial policy and what we've seen dramatically in the last year is the return of the muscular industrial policy. Once the Biden administration passed those three critical bills last August, the Infrastructure Act, the Chips and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act, all of them at their core are about bringing jobs back to America in the way that Biden 
promised his electorate, I think he's been the most consequential United States president since Lyndon Johnson, and he may well, if he is re-elected, turn out to be the most consequential president since Roosevelt. That's a big claim to make. But what does that mean on our side of the Atlantic? It means that if we don't hang together, we are most assuredly going to hang separately, as the old line goes. That um, if we're returning to a model of competitive industrial policy, where the EU is forced, for example, to allow the member state to provide subsidies for green energy, how does the United Kingdom compete, given the much larger resources at the disposal of the EU? Um, we are already seeing this in practice. Volkswagen, for example, was going to open a new electric vehicle plant, I think, in Poland, and then was essentially offered $10 billion in subsidies coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act, or the Chips and Science Act. It was one of the two. So that's the new kind of model. And to some extent, the European Union is better built because of its scale economically to withstand the trade war that's ongoing between the United States and China, the UK has to find a place for itself within that model and without the scale and the shelter that the EU condominium used to provide. So I think it's going to be difficult for both sides, but because of the UK's smaller scale, I think it's going to be you know, potentially more difficult again. And uh, the final question, on migration, indeed, on migration, indeed, because as I mentioned, Sunak had, at least in March, reported in political that Sunak had tried to engage with the Commission on this issue, and it kind of was then refloated in the UK press over the yeah. silly season, and this idea of trying to stop uh, those people yeah. crossing the Channel, and obviously the view in Downing Street is that, well, this obviously isn't starting in France, it's obviously starting on North Africa, how can we work with our EU partners? So I was just wondering in that lesson well, there too. I yeah, mean, the truth is that on migration, there is very little to separate what the UK is doing and what the European Union is doing. So the Stop the Boats campaign around the Channel is mirrored by the European Union's policy in the Mediterranean. It is equally harsh, it is equally cruel and inhumane. We saw earlier this summer, for example, hundreds of migrants who drowned in one crossing we know that the Greek Coast Guard could have rescued them and didn't. And there's a whole sort of story, I think, to be told there about the hardening of EU policy. Somehow it's presented that the UK is much more inhumane and much more cruel because of the Rwanda policy and the obsession with stop the boats and so on. I don't think so. I think all countries are facing issues related to migration. And this is a genuine collective action issue where you have to work together across borders. You cannot solve these problems if you present this as a problem uh, on your own. And by the way, if we think this year has been a difficult year in that respect, it is nothing to what's coming on down the line because of displacement from climate change, and we're already seeing this from Africa and parts of the Middle East and elsewhere, there are going to be multiples of the numbers of people who have been trying to get into Europe over the last years. And we are in no way prepared for this. It's going to cause tremendous chaos, and much more so if the UK and the European Union 
cannot come to some sort of agreement. And within the EU, where there is vast disagreement on how to handle the policy, it's just as difficult, I would say. John, it's been a real pleasure. I want to first thank you for making the time for us on the podcast, The Deed of Brussels, or A Deed of Brussels, our podcast here, which is rolling out at the UK's, or UASIS, excuse me, annual conference here in Belfast, sunny Belfast in 2023. Um, John, pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really thanks very so much, Dave.